your cultural competence. Listen to interesting stories. Learn about the cultural pitfalls and how to avoid them. Get the global perspective here at Culture Matters Podcast on International Business. We help you understand cultural diversity better by interviewing real people with real experiences, helping you develop your cultural competence. Hi there, welcome to the Culture Matters Podcast. We're in episode number 65 and we have a first timer. And the first timer is that we have a guest that we've had before and actually in episode number 24. His name is Stephen Frost. In the introduction, uh, in the interview, he will introduce himself as well. The full introduction you can listen to in um, episode 24. The reason he's on the show is that he released a book which is called Inclusive Talent Management, How Business Can Thrive in an Age of Diversity. So we can talk not only about intercultural management, but also in a broader sense about diversity. And Stephen has a lot of experience and a lot of very good views when it comes to diversity and also very good examples as well. So let's get right to it, to the interview. It's time for this week's guest at the Culture Matters podcast. Here's your host, Chris Smith. Good morning, or actually, it's good afternoon. Stephen Frost, how are you? Very well, Chris. Thanks very much. How are you doing? I'm doing really well, actually. It's uh, it's one of those uh, those summer holidays, or after summer holidays, or days, rather, when the temperature is nice and warm. And um, it's a good thing this is radio and podcast, because actually I'm sitting in shorts, and only shorts. But that's a, a Dutch revelation that I... Okay. I won't. I won't do public, so don't tell anyone. Is that okay? I won't tell anybody. Secret's safe with me, Chris. That's perfect. As um, the audience could have heard, you were on on episode number twenty-four of the Culture Matters podcast. You're back again now on episode sixty-five, which for me um, is a first timer. I've never had a guest twice on the show, and we sort of got to talk a couple of weeks ago when your new book was published, which is called Incl- um, Inclusive Talent Management: How Business Can Thrive in an Age of Diversity. It's a book that you've written together. With Danny Kalman or Kalman, yep. I believe. Yep. Yes. So, um, tell us uh, first of all before because we're going to talk about the book and um, it's it's not a it's not a total commercial for the book. That's not the idea. But it's we're talking about the content of the book and your ideas that you've put in the book. But first of all, tell us a little bit about yourself for those people that have not listened to episode twenty-four. Uh, who are you? Where do you come from? And what would be your cultural frame of reference, please? Sure. So my name is Stephen Frost. I am originally from Yorkshire in the north of England, but I live and work and based out of London, which made my cultural reference point actually a very diverse global city. Um, my background is in diversity and inclusion. I've worked in diversity and inclusion in the private sector, KPMG and advertising, uh, in the public sector at the London Olympics, where I headed up diversity and inclusion for five years. Uh, and in government, and also in the third sector at Stonewall uh, on LGBT rights and diversity and human rights and so forth. Um, and now I run a, a company called Frost Included, and we write, teach, and consult on diversity and inclusion. And um, that, I guess, is, is me, what I do, and we work with some wonderful organizations um, from all kinds of sectors uh, all around the world. Yes, and you're a busy man with that. Yeah, doing, doing good work, I hope, Yes. <laughs> Of course, we're all doing good work on the, yes. in in this niche, in this niche. Um, diversity. This this is all. It, it seems to be a Anglo-Saxon thing, because I think the continent uh, talks about cultural differences, and typically Americans. But I this is a question to you as well. Um, uh, British also tend to talk about diversity. So, in your own words, can you define define diversity and where that fits in with cultural differences? Sure. 
So for me, diversity um, is, is, is three things, essentially. Mm-hmm. Firstly, it's DNA. So it's, it's, it's demographic differences, race and gender and so forth. But I think whereas many people get stuck at that, I also think it's social context. You know, being a woman in the workplace in the Netherlands is very different from being a woman in the workplace in Saudi Arabia, for example. And I think besides DNA and social context, it's also about life experience. So, Chris, you know, your life and formative things that have happened to you in your life may be the salient determinants of your behavior mm-hmm. and indeed culture than, for example, a training program or your fact that you're a man or that you're Dutch. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, it's a combination of DNA, social context and life experience. And that for me is diversity. And then, of course, the challenge is making that work. I'm making notes as well. DNA, social context, and what, what else? Life experience. Life experience. Yeah. Okay, so where does does um, culture fit in there? Is that like a circle around it, or is it, a, is it an aspect or a pie of the chart, uh, a bit of the, of, the, of the chart in there? Well, to be honest, Chris, I mean, you know, this is something we can discuss. I think, for me, diverse inclusion is a key element of culture. So I'd say that, you know, perhaps culture is the kind of, around it, the all-encompassing thing, Mm -hmm. because certainly the work on diversity and inclusion that I and my colleagues do in organizations is primarily charged with changing the culture Mm -hmm. and the climate in that organization. Okay, and and you've got, you've written a couple of books. What other books have you written, just to give us a a bit of context? This is not your first one. No, the the first one was called The Inclusion Imperative, Mm -hmm. and that was written after the London 2012 Olympics and Paralympics. Mm So I spent five and a half years heading up the diversity work there at those games and then wrote this book primarily because there was a story that hadn't been told, which was how we created a diverse and inclusive workforce, supply chain, customer service provision and, and, and atmosphere and culture, if you like, through doing very specific things. Mm-hmm. And so it's really telling the story of that, both the, the system, the processes, the behaviors, the stories that we, that we did uh, as part of a strategy to make London 2012 everyone's 2012. Mm-hmm. And the second book, uh, which you mentioned, is called Inclusive Talent Management. Mm-hmm. And that's going beyond the case study of the London Olympics to really look at the wider application of this stuff. And we looked at over 60 organizations worldwide and how they are creating more diverse, inclusive cultures through doing very specific things mm-hmm. too. And the first part of the book is why you should bother. And the second thing is how you do it. Right. And one step back to the uh, the 2012 Olympics in London, mm. what would have happened to those games or how would they have been different if there there hadn't been paid any attention to the to the inclusion of, well, the, the diverse people there? That's a brilliant question, because often, you know, we'll meet cynical people in business who will say, well, culture, diversity, these things are quite fluffy. I mean, really, what's the business case? Yes. And I think for me, diversity, inclusion, the culture of the London Olympics and Paralympics is a wonderful counterfactual to say, imagine those games without the diversity programs. Because when you looked at it, you know, you saw that 40% of the workforce came from an ethnic minority background, that 10% of our workforce were disabled people, front and center, the games makers included, that the venues were accessible and inclusive, that we could do it during Ramadan and people could eat and drink inclusively, mm-hmm. that there were tickets of a range of prices, that we had every man, woman, child imaginable carrying the Olympic torch, that the Olympic ceremony, opening ceremony kind of, you know, conveyed an image of stereotypical Britain, but also the Britain 
Britain we want to be and the modern Britain people don't know. Mm -hmm. So I think if we hadn't consciously, preemptively, strategically focused on this, we would have ended up with a very technical, great games, mm -hmm. but without a soul without actually yep. kind of the, the competitive differentiator, if you like, that really made London 2012 uh, seen as a landmark games. Okay, so the sequel, or can I call it a sequel, the inclusive talent management? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's, it's definitely a, um, a kind of a follow-up in that sense. It's, it's kind of more work, more thinking, wider application. So, yeah. Yeah, it's the um, uh, take off my glasses because I can't read with my glasses on. In in the book on the on the backside, the um, the the cover, the back of the of the book, you actually mention that there are dangers of not being diverse and there are benefits of being diverse. So yeah. can you can you tell us what the three biggest dangers are if organizations, I guess, let's keep it to organizations, do not pay attention to diversity? Definitely. I think the first one is really lower resilience. So if you basically, again, it goes back to this counterfactual argument. We always focus on saying, well, why diversity, why diversity? But I would actually say, well, why not? Because actually, the, let's look at the dangers of sameness. And if an organization basically kind of blindly walks, you know, sleepwalks into becoming a very homogenous organization, it will lower its resilience. Because basically, they have fewer options, fewer skill sets, a smaller gene pool from which to draw on to create new solutions to evolve and to so forth. It, it goes back to, you know, basic kind of Darwinian evolution. Mm -hmm. If you don't have diversity going in, you won't get creativity and, and output coming out. So I think one is low resilience. An example of that would be, for example, the, the Chilean fish farm disaster mm -hmm. in 2007. When you had Chilean fish farms, which is the biggest industry in the world after um, Alaska, Norway, uh, the big, those big producers, those farms were very closely located. They were very densely stocked, and they used the same antibiotic on all the fish. And that created sameness environment, that homogenous environment, meant they were way more susceptible to disease and to, 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 to danger. I, th yeah. I think a second thing is basically, um, besides low, low resilience, it's increased risk. And if you look, for example, at the financial services sector, one of the reasons Lehman Brothers went bust in the financial crisis mm -hmm. is because they over-specialized in, in specialized products. They didn't do the proverbial diverse portfolio. Mm -hmm. And again, that kind of homogeneity can lead to systemic risk because you're putting all your eggs in the proverbial same basket. And I think a third thing I'd mention would be productivity. So the idea, actually, that more diverse environments can be more productive and less diverse environments can be less productive. So I think, really, risk, resilience, productivity are three things that can be, you know, great benefits of diversity, but real dangers if you have a kind of homogenous environment or company or organization. If it's, if it's that obvious, then why don't company do, companies do this? If it's, if it's so clear, if it's so in your face? Because the incentives aren't right. So, for example, um, the tragedy of the commons, you know, I might be able to hire my friend into an organization and mm -hmm. that's great for me and great for him or her. And that might make me happy. My incentives are to have a friend at work. Yes. But actually, the more friends I have at work, maybe actually the less cognitive diversity I have, the less fewer different perspectives I have and the more blind spots I have. So actually, the incentives are to do something which is not in the greater good interest. 
but it, that that's is that's like like how do you say pushing a ball up a hill because then and you also make a statement that we actually don't really want diversity because we don't like the people that are different from us so let's this is a really important point to address chris because you know let's say that we buy the benefits of diversity and we buy a business case for diversity and mm-hmm. we think yeah it's generally a good thing right mm-hmm. yeah actually let's look at ourselves quite deeply and profoundly think about our five closest friends and who they are mm-hmm. think about our five closest colleagues in our organization and who they are mm-hmm. think about our partner if we have one or if we want one or if it's going really badly, think about the partner we want to have, uh-huh. right? And think about where we live, where we've to make, make our nest. These things, when we look at our close friends and colleagues and so forth, tend to be people like us. They tend to be people that reinforce our own view of the world, that even may have the same skin tone or view on politics or mm-hmm. what have you. Mm-hmm. And that's a process called homophily. And homophily is a natural and normal occurring process that we tend to gravitate towards people like us. Mm-hmm. But it's only by looking at that and thinking about that as our in-group that we can possibly understand who's not in that group, who's in our out-group. And if we believe in diversity and the benefits of our diversity, then we quite urgently need people from that out-group. But we're not getting them because we don't naturally gravitate towards them unless we proactively do something. Yes. So all I'm saying is, and this is not an accusation that we're bad people. No. It's just it's just an observation. And the observation is that we tend to prefer sameness, consciously or unconsciously, and we tend to reject difference, consciously or unconsciously. And only by being consciously inclusive of difference can we possibly get the benefits of a diverse and inclusive organization. So then talk about these benefits then. What are the three, you've, you've mentioned the three biggest dangers of not being diverse. And so what could be the three biggest benefits a, a company or an organization could get out of actually paying attention about inclusive management or inclusive talent management? Well, Chris, because I like you so much, I'm going to give you five. All right. Okay. So the first one would be basically um, customers or clients. That by definition, the world out there is more diverse than the world inside your organization, right? Even if you're Microsoft or Walmart, right? The world is more diverse out there because there's more of them. So I think the more you can kind of reflect that diversity on the inside, the more you can mirror your market, mm-hmm. the more relevant you can be. Secondly, I'd say in terms of talent. So talent doesn't look like it used to. Talent is changing. Talent may present now with tattoos or piercings or different views on the world. Mm -hmm. And we have to be relevant to the best talent, no matter what it looks like or feels like. And if we don't like it, we need to address our own biases as much as we need to tell them to smarten up their appearance. Right? Mm -hmm. I think it's about being relevant to the best talent. I think thirdly, it's about productivity. We know that people perform better when they can be themselves, but not everyone can be themselves. You know, right now, you, because you are a confident, brilliant man in the Netherlands mm-hmm. and you're on a call, can have be sat there just in shorts, right? Sure. You wouldn't be able to do that if you were in the office at McKinsey. No. So I think it's about how do we create environments where everyone can perform to their best and we know that some people are further away from the norm, which might work for us, than other people are. So how can we create an environment where everyone can bring their whole self to work and perform to their best? Mm-hmm. I think the fourth thing is really decision-making. And this is super exciting because it's really the science of how we make decisions and how we also make really bad decisions. And it can often be around, do we tolerate cognitive diversity? Do we tolerate different points of view? Do we actually cover our own blind spots? 
or do we basically take cover in the group and make more risky decisions than we would do if we were individually accountable for them? So I think diversity can lead to better decision-making. And the fifth and final thing I'd say is it's about ethics. There is a crisis of trust between business and society at the moment. And I think it's really ethically important that we seek to reflect the world and greater society in what we do for you know, ethical credibility, if you like. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to digest this. And, and for me, the conclusion out of this is that you have a very positive belief in, in mankind, that people are, are intrinsically good. If you give them all, this, all, this, all these five points, then the company would fare well. Is that, is that correct? I think you've got to be positive because, I mean, we can debate the alternative, but I think there's so many challenges in the world right now. Yeah. We've got to be positive about the benefits that we can do. And I think, look, my experience of working in many, many different organizations with many, many different diverse people is that I think on the whole, I would say yes, most people want to do the right thing. It's about aligning those incentives and creating the kind of structures that enable them to do that. Okay. It's... Yeah, it's um I'm I'm thinking about um, an article I read this morning in the um, on the on the Dutch news and discussions I've had earlier with uh, with hotel companies and organizations as well. The Dutch news part was that the sales of electric cars actually went down by what is it seventy percent or something in the Netherlands from thirteen thousand to four thousand and a bit, and um, the the main reason was uh, the economic incentive was gone. And I think a lot of big organizations will only move if they actually can see the numbers, the, the, the finance, mm. the dollars, the euros, the pounds. Mm. Where are those? I mean, obviously, customers are there, but that's, that's a promise on future delivery. How can, you, how can you promise this and actually make this a reality? Well, we can already do that. I mean, we, you know, I think a lot of diversity people may overstate their case by claiming causation. You know, that if, you know, Chris Smith, Inc., um, you know, becomes more diverse, you will ne inevitably make more money. Mm -hmm. We can't prove causation yet, but we can prove correlation. Yes. And there are zillions of studies now in the US, in Europe, all over the world, in Latin America, that show the correlation between particularly gender diversity and racial diversity and financial performance. And so this correlation now is pretty watertight. It's been done so much to such statistical significance degrees that we can, we can show that pretty, pretty strongly. And again, I go back to the incentives point. You know, whilst that works for the overall company or organization, it might not work for individuals. So how do we actually align the self-interest with the collective interest to generally get the benefits of diversity? Okay. Yes. It's no. It's, it, I'm just thinking about you know. It's if because people will move for money, and, and I don't think I think I don't think world change will come from from people, but more from technology. I mean, look at at global warming. Uh, I don't think we will drive any less unless, of course, cars, electric cars, or solar powered something will get cheaper, and then we're willing to do that just because it's in it's our convenience, as such. So it has sure. to be, it has to be convenient, has to be easy, low threshold hold, and uh, and people would have to so clearly see their benefit. What's my oh, benefit course. here? But let's, but let's look at that, Chris, because this is, this is key to the argument, right? Yes. Again, the incentives. If, for example, uh, I stay at a hotel mm -hmm. and there are nice fluffy towels, um, I'll use the fluffy towel and I'll leave it on the floor because I want a new fluffy towel, yeah. right? But if you actually put up a sign saying, in the last week, 80% of people who stayed in this room reuse their towel, mm -hmm. then the rate of use go, will actually dramatically change. Yes. And that's, that's measured. Yeah. 
that's measured. Yeah. If, for example, you know, I mean, Google have done this in their staff canteen. Mm -hmm. If you place the apples and the healthy fruit at the beginning and you put the kind of naughty sweets at the back, yeah. people eat healthier, yeah. right? Because they want to do that. They just need to be. But if the chocolate bars and everything are so accessible, then you're going to get them, aren't you? Yep. So I think it's the nudges. I mean, you mentioned people wanting to drive cars. Sure. But in London, we put a congestion charge in the middle of town. Mm -hmm. And now if you want to drive a car, you've got to pay to go into town. Mm -hmm. And guess what? Few people drive because it's, a, it's all about nudges and incentives and so forth to try and help people do what they think is the right thing to do. Yeah. Right? I'll give you another example, which yes, is directly relevant to kind of diversity in this discussion. Uh -huh. Hiring people. At the London Olympics, we had to hire 200,000 people. Right, to put on those games. And the incentives there were purely commercial in one sense. It was, you know, cost, it was time to hire, it was getting them ready and getting them deployed. And to save time and money, we hired in groups, we hired in bundles, we hired 10 program managers, 10, you know, uh, supervisors, whatever it might be. But when you hire in groups, you hire more diversity than if you hire one-on-one. -on -one. Yeah. Because I meet Chris one-on-one, -on -one and I'm like, Chris is a great guy. Mm -hmm. He's a really great guy. We form a relationship. I'm like, yeah, I want to hire Chris. Mm -hmm. And then I meet another Chris, and the same thing again and again and again. Yep. But if I meet 10 Chris's in one going one room, I'm like, I don't want 10 Chris's. I want a couple of Chris's, a couple of whatever. And, and you're much likely to think about the skill set and less about the identity of the person. Mm -hmm. So even in those things, we can, we can really change the incentives to create more diverse outcomes. Mm -hmm. Cool. All right. In in your um, book, you mentioned you've interviewed what is it, sixty companies or something? Zero companies? Yeah, yes. over over sixty. Yeah, I think over sixty. Yeah. I went through the list because it's at the beginning of the book, and uh, I see Accenture, AIG, mm. ANT, AT and T. Sorry, Bank of America, BEA. IBM, flipping through Nokia, NHS, which is, I guess, your National Health Service. Mm -hmm. Yes, um, and uh, many, many more. It, this, the bias seems to be towards Western companies, correct? Well, there's definitely biases in the book, which we acknowledge because everyone's got biases. But we tried very hard to interview people from all over the world. So mm -hmm. we did a lot of work in Latin America and in Japan and China, for example. I see. I see uh, Singapore Airlines, for instance. I mean, being an Asian company, and I don't know all companies there. But to what extent the, the, the fact that the uh, majority of the companies tend to be Western, to what extent does that would that bias or influence your findings in this book? I mean, I think to be or, or, or maybe maybe the, the the emphasis should be on Western companies. Maybe that could be a focus as well. Well, yes and no, because some of the things are clearly um, geographically specific, mm -hmm. right? You mentioned the National Health Service, which is very British, yes. or you mentioned other companies which will have a particular culture from their head office or origin and, and so forth. But the book's been translated into Japanese and, and Chinese, and they're the biggest selling uh, market at the moment for this book. Okay. Now, is it because actually they want Western ideas to your point about is this a western bias with examples or is it actually that they also look at the example and that do come from those countries you know we spent a lot of time think looking at japan and the, the gender crisis in japan that you know part of the reason japan's a slow growth is because it hasn't effectively utilized its women and actually only now really with the incentive of the japan 2020 olympics mm -hmm. are they really seriously looking at the gender issue as an economic issue as a cultural issue as a massive issue for the country future of the country mm -hmm. if i look for example at what we talk about in terms of gender equality and promotions and senior levels and organizations 
one of the organizations we look at is KPMG. Yes. KPMG is a Swiss holding company for federated structure in over 130 countries. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the KPMG practice in the Netherlands or in the UK, the, the proportion of female partners is very low. It's about 14% of the senior partners are women. Mm-hmm. If you look in China, it's over 40%. So I think these things are important to compare and contrast and to say, well, actually, what is Western? And actually, what can we learn from China, quite mm-hmm. frankly, about gender equality? Building on that, and and I'm not trying to be provocative. I'm just trying to. Oh, please do. Oh, oh well, I will be provocative then. Yeah. You you say um, that's towards the middle or towards the end of the book. You say that LBGTs, which stands for lesbian, bisexual, gays, and transsexuals. If I'm not transgender, mistaken, yeah, transgender. Yes, they're still not. And I'm making air quotes here. Included in certain African and Middle Eastern countries. You are specific in the countries you mentioned in the book. Um, you specifically call this lack of progress or even regression. But but what if these countries just don't want this? Meaning, why? what gives you the right, you as in Stephen Frost or you and, 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 and Danny Kalman, the right to say, well, this is not progress, this should be progress, actually it's regression. What if these people just don't want this and they're okay as it is? They don't want your inclusion idea. Mm-hmm. So I think there are, there are things which are absolutely culturally contextual, right? And who the hell am I as a white Western person to tell a particular African country what its inclusion policy should or shouldn't be, mm-hmm. right? And I think I've got a lot of empathy and sympathy for that point of view. But there are some aspects which are universal. Mm-hmm. And I would say for me, human rights are universal, right? When I speak to people who are LGBT in Uganda, in Nigeria, in Saudi, you know, these are gay people, gay brothers and sisters, fellow human beings who are having a horrible time. Yes. And I think that is a universal idea which doesn't necessarily have to conflict with the culture uh, in that organize in that particular country or sphere, what have you. Mm-hmm. If, for example, LGBT people in Uganda could, you know, not face um homophobia on a daily basis, mm-hmm. uh, nastiness in the media, the potential for violence and death and intimidation. If that could be removed, I don't think it would harm Ugandan culture. And no, it, w- it won't harm Ugandan culture, but the, exactly the Ugandan culture says, we don't like this. This is strange, well, weird, it? and or, or scary, the, or threatening. Because, well, does it? Because the, the Rolling Stone magazine in Uganda says that, but actually I know lots of straight Ugandans who don't say that. Mm-hmm. And similarly in Saudi Arabia, um, there may be more uh, extreme aspects in the regime that think that, you know, women should be stoned or that LGBT people should be hung. Mm. But actually, a lot of people don't think that. So I think culture is not static and it depends, you know, who who we're talking to in those countries. Don't get me wrong. I have nothing against LBGT people or whatever, left, right, or center. I just, I just feel there's a very strong uh, tendency or trend for, um, in my experience at least, predominantly Western people to say this is the norm, this is right, and this is wrong. What we do here is something you should do there as well. And, 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 you, and you know, Chris, that in 99% of circumstances, I would uh, completely agree with you. And so, for example, the way that we run companies or, or have cultural nuances in Singapore or Malaysia compared with the UK, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But I go back to, you know, what I'm talking about in this instance is a very minority aspect of universal human rights, mm-hmm. which I personally, yes, don't believe are, are up for negotiation. Yeah. 
Okay, fair enough. Um, the, the thing that, that typically triggered me, I mean, being in my business, being uh, an intercultural consultant and, um, uh, and, and trainer, is you state that diversity training doesn't work, period. You, you, you elaborate on it, but I'm asking you to elaborate even further on it. So why not? Why do you think that diversity training does not work? And what can diversity trainers do about this? So teach me something that I don't sure, know. Sure, sure. So let's go back to our definition of diversity. Yes. I said to you it was DNA plus social context plus life experience. Yes. But I think a lot of diversity training really just focuses on DNA. And when you diversity train people who don't identify with that aspect of DNA because they're not female or they're not black or they're not gay, they don't necessarily feel that it's relevant to them. And indeed, actually, it can, you know, annoy them. It can actually have the effect of actually alienating them, thinking, why am I spending three hours of my time to learn about them when it's not relevant to me? Yes. And when you look at, for example, the work of Frank Dobbin um, in, from Harvard in the US or, or other scholars, they've looked at the fact that the United States spends up to $8 billion a year on these types of trainings, and nothing has substantially changed in terms of their attitudes. So I think what I mean by diversity training doesn't work means that defined thing of just on DNA, that defined thing of compliance-based, classroom-based, sheep-dipping style diversity training often turns people off more than it turns them on. Mm -hmm. Because by definition, when you talk to majorities about quote-unquote minorities in that sense, they don't engage. So can, can you please all of the people all of the time here then? Well, I think this is about making it personal. Uh -huh. It's about saying, actually, why would a straight, white, American man possibly care about, you know, uh, Black Lives Matter or about LGBT or about women's rights? And it's trying to get them to understand what we discussed before. When you look at your in-group, your closest friends, family, and so forth, and you look at the business case for diversity, if you don't do something about getting those diverse people in... You, it's never going to happen. You're never going to get the benefit. You're never actually going to enhance your own intelligence, cultural intelligence, leadership capability. Mm -hmm. Only if you practically do that can you do that. So uh, what I mean then is if, if you do diversity training or cultural training mm -hmm. that actually is personal to the person, then you've got a way more, much more chance of getting a result. Mm -hmm. And getting the buy-in, and then getting the the benefits that you that you're that you're after. Yeah, yeah. Um, I told you just before recording. I just came back from London yesterday. I did a workshop there, and uh, a diversity or an intercultural management workshop. Mm -hmm. And one of the delegates there, he was a Swede, and he said, "You know what." Why? Why do we even bother? Why not just you know leave the Swedes to the Swedes, let the Germans do the German thing, the Brits do their British thing, and the Indians the Indian thing, and then why? Why even bother to integrate? To to yeah to integrate? Does it? Why do we keep to ourselves? Because then we have war. I think you know that's a strong statement. Well, we do. Yeah. I mean, if you look around the world right now, we've got a few problems, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons we've got a few problems is because we can't communicate with each other and work out that our interests are actually collective more than individual, more than we realize. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it's an overstatement to say war, because when you look at what's going on, right, it's a complete failure to reconcile self-interest with collective interest. You know, we talked before, but you gave the LGBT example and, and, and globally. If you talk to, for example, Charles Radcliffe at the UN or, or other people who've really thought about this, who's their daily work, it's about really how can you reconcile a supposedly competing rights or different cultures and actually realize we have so much more to gain than to lose. 
And so that's why, you know, in the UK as school kids, you start doing a school exchange with the twin town in France, right? Where French and British culture is so different, yet, you know, our lives are enriched when we have people of both countries that are involved in our friendship circles. So I, I think that's why we need to do this. And that's why your work and I think my work is really important because what you're trying to do is break down barriers, generally enlarge the pie for everyone. And, and that reconciliation of selfish and collective interest is in, is, is in everyone's interest. Now, the, the clearest, um, maybe I was going to say the clearest argument against all this is, is, your, is the UK Brexit and, and the, the Europe becoming one. Or am I totally missing the point here? Well, no, I mean, Brexit is an enormous um, shock, significance yes. event. And there's a lot to talk about that. I mean, not a lot of people did not vote for what they actually voted for, etc. Mm -hmm. So it's broader than that. I realize that as well. Mm -hmm. But is there a future in Europe and as, 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 as being united or somewhat united or united differently? So I think Europe has got a history of disunity. I think that Europe, Say that again, please, Stephen. I think Europe has a history of disunity. Disunity, yes. Yeah. I think Europe right now has got major challenges. Uh -huh. but clearly, if we want to, um, you know, challenge terrorism, if we want to improve our climate or stop the damage, if we want to have uh, a greater economy, you know, then clearly we have to cooperate. <laughs> and so I think for me, this is about acknowledging people's individual feelings and respects and so forth, but actually working towards where, you know, one-on-one -on -one can be two-plus, mm. where we can actually genuinely benefit. It's back to example of, you know, LGBT in Uganda, right? Mm -hmm. What can I do there that, you know, helps the rights of those LGBT people without harming the rights of the people? Yeah. And you still end up net positive, right? Yes. So, so Brexit has been a tremendous shock uh, to, to many people in the sense that it's been a big rejection of the European project. Yep. And to your degree, yes, a, a thousand caveats about did people know really what they were voting for and uh -huh. so forth. But I think given this, we now have to work even harder to say why it's really important that Dutch and British people know each other, that, you know, as you to your point, Swedes and others kind of get to know each other. Mm -hmm. Because the alternative is really quite frightening that we retrench, we reject, we we become isolated, and we just, you know, that is not going to enlarge the pie for anyone. Yes, I totally agree, very much. We're talking to Stephen Frost, who's the author of Inclusive Talent Management, How Business Can Thrive in an Age of Diversity. Um, um, it's about 33 minutes in recording at this moment, and uh, usually towards the end, because the podcasts are around 30 minutes, so I'm, I'm sort of uh, segueing towards the end now. As I and usually ask people, give us three tips to become more culturally competent. But you mentioned in the beginning of this interview that uh, at the end of the book, you will tell the, the reader of your book um, how, to, how to actually do this, how to implement inclusive talent management. Mm, mm, Can you mm. give us like three tips? That, that will be the three tips that I will be asking for. What are three tips or main steps, if you want, an organization to take to move towards inclusive talent management? Okay. Do you want me to give you three tips, kind of organization, like a system thing, or three tips personally as an individual leader? What, what, what has the biggest impact? Hmm. Where does it start? I mean, an organization doesn't exist without its people. So I, I don't know. It's people making the organization. Okay. Well, let's do that then. Mm -hmm. So let's, let's, let me say three tips, if you like, how we as individuals can become more inclusive yes. leaders. I think the first is to really understand, to know yourself. Think about your in-group, 
your closest friends, colleagues, and so forth. And think about who's not in that group. And think about what you're doing to reach out to people who are not in that group. And what you're doing to reach out to people who are as far away from that group as you can possibly handle. That'll be one. Mm -hmm. I think second is think about your leadership style. Are you expecting people to adapt to you or are you willing to adapt to them? And I think really that adaptability and that authenticity is really, really important. And third, I think, deliver. So what have you actually done? It's easy to have this conversation in some senses, and it's important to do so, but it's more important in terms of what have you done. So what can you point to that you've done in the last week to make the world a more inclusive place? Maybe you've been more equitable in the, the time you allocate to your diet reports. Maybe you've changed the way that you run a meeting and actually let somebody else chair it and you take a back seat and listen. What have you done to actually deliver inclusion on a practical level on a, on a day-to-day basis? And I think if you understand your in-groups and out-groups and reach out to people, if you lead and flex your style to include others, and if you deliver, you do micro-behaviors, small things that make a difference, then you yourself can be more of an inclusive leader and encourage others to follow you too. So you have to step out your, out of your comfort zone, I guess, a lot. Yeah, and that's one reason why this is really challenging work, because yes. people like to be comfortable. Yeah. But, but yeah, being, yeah. being comfortable can be how we sleepwalk into isolation. Yes. So, you know, it's okay to be comfortable with your friendship group in your own time. That's your right. Enjoy it. But in a professional sense, think about how you can be purposely disruptive and a little uncomfortable yeah. in order to get benefit for everyone. As they say, life begins outside of your comfort zone. Indeed. <laughs> Stephen Frost, Inclusive Talent Management, How Business Can Thrive in an Age of Diversity. Where can people get the book, Stephen? People can get this online. They can get it on Amazon. They can get it on the Kogan Page website. Just yep. go to koganpage.com. That's the publisher, and the, yeah. Yeah, and they can kind of get it also from the link on my Twitter feed, which is at Frost Included. And if people want to get in touch with you, how can they do that? Best way again, Twitter, at Frost Included, or drop me an email to Stephen at frostincluded.com. All right. It'll be in the show notes, everything like that, plus a link to the um, uh, the Amazon site. And um, that'll all be there. Episode number 65 we're talking about. Stephen, it's been a great pleasure to talk to you once again. Who knows in the future and when there's uh, the fourth, fifth book. Do you have anything uh, on the shelf uh, in mind? There's a few more in the pipeline, but I'm going to have a little time off at the moment. <laughs> get on with my consulting and teaching. Good for you. All right, excellent. Have a great day, and thanks for coming on the show again. Same to you, Chris. Thanks ever so much. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks, Stephen. Again, I'm sure we'll bump into each other when your third, fifth, or sixth book is published. Who knows? Thanks again for listening to the Culture Matters podcast. Episode 65 is done. If you like what I'm doing here with this podcast, then I would really appreciate that you could either leave a comment on the site, culturematters.com, or you could go to iTunes or Stitcher and leave a comment there. iTunes preferably. Give a rating, a good rating if you can, and leave a comment there. It's always greatly appreciated. Thanks so much. I'll be back in two weeks with another guest in the Culture Matters podcast. Take care. Bye-bye. That's it for this episode. The Culture Matters Podcast, helping you understand cultural diversity better by interviewing real people with real experiences.